Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a series of short essays about Edinburgh, Scotland. In his picturesque notes of Edinburgh, he tells the story of two unmarried sisters who shared a single room. As is often the case with those who share close quarters, they had an argument. But in their case, the argument was over a point of theology, Christian doctrine. And Stevenson does not say what the issue was. But the disagreement was so sharp that these two sisters never spoke to one another again. But they continued to live together in that same small room. Now, that was either because they couldn't afford to move out or perhaps for fear of scandal and being talked about around town. So they drew a chalk line that went to the center of both the door and the fireplace so that each could go in and out and cook without stepping into the other's territory. For years, they coexisted in hateful silence. Their meals, their baths, their family visitors were continually exposed to the other's unfriendly silence. At night, each would hear the breathing of her enemy. And these two sisters continued that way the rest of their miserable lives. Now notice, the initial argument was about theology. So it appears that these sisters were churchgoers. That raises in my mind a question. How many times did they sit in church and say, recite the disciples' prayer? Which contains in verse 12 of Matthew 6 these words, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, I said they said that prayer. They recited that prayer. The truth is they could never have truly prayed those words, for had they seriously prayed them, it would have moved them to reconciliation. Years before Stevenson's observation of these two Scottish sisters, the poet Alexander Pope wrote famously, To err is human, but to forgive is divine. To forgive is considered to be beyond human ability because, in fact, it does not come naturally, but rather supernaturally. A Christian author described a time in which he and his wife were having a conversation about his many shortcomings, and in the middle of the conversation she said, I find it pretty amazing that I forgive you for some of the awful things that you do. Now, it was not good for her to rub in the fact that he had many issues, but she did have an insight into forgiveness. The fact is, forgiveness is not natural. In fact, forgiveness goes against the grain of everything we feel when we're wronged. We want revenge. We want the person to pay. We want to hold on to the feeling of superiority when we have one up on the other person. And what are the practical consequences of this unwillingness to forgive? Well, for lack of forgiveness, anger hardens into resentment, and it often calcifies into bitterness and eventually explodes. For lack of forgiveness, husbands and wives refuse to speak or when they do speak, they do so harshly and angrily, and eventually marriages disintegrate. For lack of forgiveness, churches experience factions and splits and much grief, and the name of Jesus is brought into disrepute. 
That list could go on and on, could it not? For lack of forgiveness. Today we're going to look at this issue of forgiveness a second week, last week. In our observance of the Lord's table, it was surrounded by the theme of forgiveness. If you were not able to be with us for that, I encourage you to listen online. All of our messages are at our website. And today we continue that theme. We need to ask the Lord to help us supernaturally to be able to do this thing which does not come naturally. Let's bow together. Father, forgive us our sins. But do so as we forgive those who sin against us. And as we pray this prayer, Lord, we feel our own inadequacy to perform it. But as always, Lord, we have to ask you to grant that which thou commands. Grant us the ability to do what you require, for we cannot do it on our own. Grant us open hearts, attentive minds, so that we will be able to please the Lord Jesus Christ by obeying his commands. In this passage of Scripture, we pray in his name. Amen. Each week, we insert in your program an outline. We've done that again this week. So if you've not had opportunity to pull that out, then I encourage you to take a look at it now. And I want us to see from a few verses, three verses in particular from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' famous sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount, a couple of major points. The first is this. We pray to be forgiving. We pray to be forgiving. We pray to be forgiving. Now, I say that for this reason, that in Jesus' model prayer that we looked at a few weeks ago, in that model prayer, there are six requests, six petitions that Jesus says is a model of the way we should approach the Father in prayer. We should pray that his name be hallowed in his world, that his name be made holy, that people extol his character. We should pray because we desire that his kingdom come. And we should pray thirdly that his will be done. And then in verse 11, Jesus says we should pray to the Lord to give us this day, today, what we need just for this particular day. And then in the fifth of those six requests, he says, pray to the Lord, forgive us our debts. That is, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And then sixthly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This petition, this fifth of the, the six requests to the Lord, found in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It's a prayer for forgiveness for sure, but it's also a prayer for a forgiving spirit. The last part of verse 12 says, do this, Lord, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Augustine called this the terrible petition. Because he recognized the seriousness of the logic that's found in verse 12. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. Because if we pray, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. Hear this, friends. If we do that with an unforgiving heart, think about it. An unforgiving heart that says, forgive us as we forgive all the while with an unforgiving heart, we are actually asking God not to forgive us. 
This issue of a forgiving spirit is so important that of the six requests that Jesus has in this model prayer, it's the one that he chose to elaborate on. And he elaborates on it in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now you look at that, and it appears that if I forgive, then the Father in turn responds and forgives. And so that somehow I've done something to earn God's forgiveness. Well, if you know anything about the Scriptures, then you will know that that's contrary to what the Bible teaches about the Gospel. In fact, it is not that I do this and then God does it. One commentator says this, Jesus' point is that God forgives the penitent. That is, if we understand how precious it is to be forgiven, if we know how much it costs God to forgive, then we will forgive others. The forgiven have motives to forgive. We thank God for his gift. We admire the beauty of his way, and we hope to do the same for others. Yet another commentator says, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear, by comparison, extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own sins. So this is a prayer for us to be forgiving. And I have in your outline some things that we are to be forgiving, some reasons that we are to be forgiving. The first is this. We are forgiving because our Father is forgiving. We are forgiving because our Father is forgiving. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. As we saw last week, as we covered this theme of forgiveness during our observance of the Lord's table, the very next verse that starts chapter 5 of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.32, the last verse in chapter 4, then it goes into chapter 5, but the very first verse says this, be imitators of God. So it says to be kind and be compassionate, forgive one another, and then it says be imitators of God. Now, the word that's translated imitators is the word from which we get mimic. God says you're to mimic my actions in your actions. He's saying if you're really part of my family, then there needs to be a family resemblance in the way you behave. Now, how do we show that resemblance? That's what chapter 4 and verse 32 was about, being kind, being compassionate, forgiving one another. So the implications of that should be obvious for us. Lack of forgiveness is characteristic of unbelievers. Forgiveness is characteristic of those who belong to the Father. And lack of forgiveness then is characteristic of unbelievers. We're going to see more about that in a bit. But hear this then, friends. When we harbor bitterness or we seek for vengeance, we're saying that God cannot be trusted to handle His universe. We're saying, in effect, God, you know there's an injustice here. I've been wronged, and I'm going to do something about it because I can't trust you to sort it out. But God says, as many of you know, in his word, vengeance is whose? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. 
And elsewhere, the Bible laments the fact that professing believers were taking each other to court because they would not resolve their differences. Here's what it says. One brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? (laughs) Yikes. Be wronged? And be cheated? Are you kidding? I'm an American. I've got rights. I stand up for my rights. I'm nobody's doormat. And yet God is saying there is something, no, there is someone much higher than your rights. And my reputation as carried out and seen in the world by my people is more important than you getting the last word. We're forgiving because the Father is forgiving. And secondly, we're forgiving because we have been forgiven. We're forgiving because we have been forgiven. Did you notice that Jesus has this model prayer in verses 9 through 13? And in verses 9 through 13, he has these six requests that I've gone over. The fifth of those six requests is... Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. But then there's the sixth one in verse 13. And then in verse 14 and 15, he goes back to forgiveness. So it's forgiveness, then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, then forgiveness again. Why is that? Friends, it's no accident that lead us not into temptation is sandwiched between a request for forgiveness in the disciples' prayer in verse 12. And Jesus' explanation of the importance of forgiveness in verses 14 and 15. You have that prayer to be forgiven in verse 12. Then the request that we not be led into temptation in verse 13. And then verse 14 begins this way. Notice, for. That is, because. So there's a connection between verse 14 and verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. For. And when, here's the connection. When we pray in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For, because Jesus says in verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's the connection. As we said earlier, to err is human. To forgive is divine. But to fail to forgive is demonic. I mean, let us just up the ante. Jesus says we need to be delivered from the evil one. And part of that deliverance from the evil one is that we, unlike those who have him, the devil, as their father, have God as our father. And because of that fact, we will be forgiving people. And so Jesus says, because, if you fail to forgive. Friends, the more we recognize our own vulnerability to sin, and that's what that last petition, that last request in the disciples' prayer is about, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. We pray this because we know our own weakness, our own spiritual weakness, our own susceptibility to sin. But the more we know our own vulnerability to sin, the more forgiving we are. We forgive. Because we have been, and we recognize that we have been forgiven. 
That was the lesson that Jesus had to teach Peter. And then by extension, he teaches us in Matthew chapter 18. When Peter came and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, when Peter asks this question, he's repeating a common teaching by the rabbis of his day that you forgive seven times, but not after that. Seven times is the limit. And some of you are thinking, how cool would that be? And Jesus corrected that false teaching. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And as I said last week, that doesn't mean count 490, and then with 491, you're out of here. And it's after that that Jesus gives this famous parable. And in the parable, he tells the story of a man who owed, in our currency, it would be millions of dollars. He owed millions of dollars. But he begged for for mercy, and he was shown mercy. And rather than being put in debtor's prison, he was released. But then he remembered that there was someone who, again, in our currency, it's a relative few dollars. He remembered somebody owed him a few bucks. And he goes and finds that person, and he takes that person, and he demands that that person pay him the very last cent. And Jesus ended that story by saying this. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is saying that if we cannot forgive others the relatively small sins they commit against us, it can only be because we fail to receive forgiveness for the infinite debt that we owed to God. And conversely, if we understand the enormous debt of sin that God in Christ has canceled for us, we'll understand that the wrongs that we suffer are minuscule in comparison, and we will readily forgive. What have you been forgiven? What have I been forgiven? The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, He forgave us all our sins. All our sins, past, present, and future. Romans chapter 4 quotes the first part of your Bible, Psalm 32, when it says this, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Dear friends, if you have had that happen to you, if you recognize the enormity of what it is that God has forgiven through Jesus Christ for you, then you will be a forgiving person because you have been forgiven. We forgive because the Father is forgiving and because we have been forgiven. And I say thirdly in your outline, we are continually forgiving because we are sinful. We're continually forgiving because we are sinful. The necessity of Christians being forgiving people led to one of John Wesley's famous statements. Wesley was serving as a missionary to the colonies and he was having a difficult time with General James Oglethorpe, who in 1732 was commissioned by the British Parliament to establish a colony in America, which he did, and he named it Georgia, after King George. Evangelist Wesley sought to persuade Oglethorpe of his need for the gospel, but he found him to be an especially proud and stubborn man. And in a particularly prideful moment, Oglethorpe said this to Wesley, I never forgive. To which Wesley replied, Then I hope, sir, you never sin. 
Since I am continually sinful, then I am to be continually forgiving. You say, well, you know, I'm not continually sinful. If you're saying that right now, that you're not continually sinful, you do not understand what the Bible teaches about sin. You see, friends, what we tend to do is this. We come into the Christian life and we have very quickly some of the rough edges and obvious things that we have pursued in our lives. Those start to pass away. So there may have been habits that were harmful to you and harmful to others and God graciously saves you and you put those things aside and you start to go down a different path and thank God for that. But then we begin to think, you know, I'm hanging around with new people. I come to church. I play the part. I talk the part. My sin's not so bad anymore. Ah, but every thought and every word and every deed that does not conform to the character of our God is sin. And every thought that we should think but fail to think. And every word that we should speak but fail to speak. And deed we should do but fail to carry out. Those two are sins of omission before God. You put all that together, the way we think and the way we talk and the way we act, and then failing to think and talk and act as we ought. And I'm correct, aren't I? That we continually sin. And because of the fact that we continually sin then, We continually forgive. We forgive because our Father does. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive because we continue to sin. And then fourthly, and I want to spend some time on this fourth one. We are faithfully forgiving because we are truthful. Faithfully forgiving because we are truthful. What what does that mean? Well, the first thing we need to do is understand really what forgiveness is because I find that many people have a misunderstanding about what forgiveness is. Most of the misconceptions about forgiveness arise because we equate forgiveness with feeling. Forgiveness, hear this, friends, is not about feeling forgiving or liking the one you forgive. People sometimes say, I can't forgive. And when they say that, they're really saying, I don't think I can feel good about this person who has done this thing. But we're going to see that forgiveness is not primarily about feeling. It is certainly not first about feeling. And in fact, you can forgive someone that you don't feel good about. God forgives us. And yet God did not look at us and say, you know, she's cute. I really feel good about him or her. I'm going to forgive them. God makes a choice, a commitment to forgive us. And so Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And Isaiah 43 says, The Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Now, I want to show you that this is a choice that God makes. It's not a feeling, and here's how. God says, I will remember your sins no more. And we then sometimes translate into forgive and what? Forget. But you know, it's impossible. It's actually impossible for God to forget anything. I mean, he's God. (laughs) And he's an omniscient God. He knows everything. It's actually impossible for him to not know something happened. It's actually impossible for him to forget it. It's not that he 
forgets. He's incapable of doing that. But rather, hear this, he chooses not to think about it. He makes a choice and he makes a promise to his people that I will remember them no more. I will focus on them no more. And so forgiveness is not first about a feeling. It's also not the same as an apology. I try to maintain this distinction by using the words I'm sorry when I've offended someone accidentally. Of course, that can happen, right? You, accident, you bump into somebody, you say, I'm sorry. Or you interrupt someone, you say, I'm, I'm sorry. But forgiveness is for sin. I'm sorry is for accidents. Forgiveness is for, is for sin. So here's a, a definition from Peacemaker Ministries or their statement regarding forgiveness. They say this, Through forgiveness, God tears down the walls that our sins have built, and he opens the way for a renewed relationship with him. This is exactly what we must do if we are to forgive as the Lord forgives us. We must release the person who has wronged us from the penalty of being separated from us. We must not hold wrongs against others and not think about those wrongs. Therefore, forgiveness may be described as a decision based on four promises. And I have those promises in your outline. And I'd like to go through them. When we forgive, we promise these four things. We promise not to dwell on another's sin. So someone has sinned against you. They come to you. They acknowledge that sin. They ask for your forgiveness. You grant that forgiveness. And in so doing, you are promising that you will not dwell on that sin. It may well come to mind. And particularly if it's something quite heinous and quite traumatic. And some have experienced those kinds of things. And even into adulthood, it's hard, it's hard to forget those things. They will come to mind, but when they come to mind, we make a commitment that we will not meditate on it. We will not dwell on it. We can't keep it from coming to mind. We can keep from dwelling on it. So we promise not to dwell on another's sin. We secondly promise not to revisit another's sin. Not to revisit another's sin. That is, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Oh, man. So in how many relationships is the stuff that was done in the past brought up? And it's dangled out there as something that I have over you as a weapon to be used when I need it. Some of you have heard me tell this story. A counselor said he had a husband and wife come to him for marriage counseling. And the husband was telling what happened that finally brought them to the counselor's office. And he said, you know, we were having this argument and then all of a sudden she just went historical. And he said, don't you mean hysterical? And he said, no, historical. She brought up everything I had ever done. And some of us keep a record, even though 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, says of the many characteristics of love, love does not keep a record of wrongs. We promise not to revisit another's sin. Thirdly, we promise not to speak another's sin. When you ask forgiveness, when I ask forgiveness of you, when that forgiveness is granted, 
I am promising, among these other things, that I will not talk about your sin to other people. Now, how many of you have talked about, I don't want a show of hands, but how many of you have talked about your spouse to your friends? And you have talked about their sins. Thank you, Paul, for that confession. I, (laughs) I don't want a show of hands. Paul raises his hand. And I've seen this pattern over and over again with couples. She has her cadre of friends. He has his buddies. And when they're together, they talk about, you know, what life is like living with her, living with him. Do you understand, friends, that we are gossiping about our spouses when we do that? We're often coupling that gossip with slander to talk down all of these violations of of Scripture. We promise not to speak another's sin. And then fourthly, we promise not to maintain another's sin. That is, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now, by making and keeping these promises, Peacemaker Ministry says, you can tear down the walls that stand between you and your offender. You promise not to dwell on or brood over the problem or to punish by holding the person at a distance. You clear the way for your relationship to develop unhindered by memories of past wrongs. This is exactly what God does for us, and it's what he calls us to do for others. Now, that raises some questions, practically speaking, for us in our relationships. And I'd like to deal with three of those. I don't have them in your outline. One is this. Who is responsible to pursue reconciliation? The offender or the offended. Who's responsible to pursue this reconciliation? The Bible says that the offending party has a responsibility to initiate the process. You're in chapter 6 of Matthew. Take a look at chapter 5 and verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, that is, you sinned against them, then leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So the offending party is to seek forgiveness. Now, if you've had someone sin against you, you may be feeling pretty good right now. After all, it's her move. She sinned against me. That's what Jesus says, but not so fast. Because in Matthew 18, Jesus places the responsibility not on the offending party, but the offended. This is what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So how do you you reconcile these? On the one hand, we have the responsibility of the the offender to go and seek forgiveness. On the other, the responsibilities with the offended, and which is it? And the answer, of course, is with both. In fact, they should run into each other on the way to each other. So who's responsible? If you have sinned against someone, if you've been sinned against, Jesus says... This issue of reconciliation is so important, you initiate the process in either case. Here's another question. Can I forgive someone who has not asked for it? Can I forgive someone who has not asked me to forgive them? 
Because if we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us, of course, we come to God through Christ by confessing our sin and asking the Lord to forgive us of our sin and to rescue us, to save us. So can I forgive even when I'm not asked? Technically, the answer to that is no. If forgiveness is to be granted and relationship restored, then it's preceded by confession. Remember what 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, and this is what many people are saying when they ask that question. I've been asked that many times over the years. Can I forgive someone who's not asked? The answer is, as I say, technically no. That reconciliation cannot happen unless the person is willing to pursue that reconciliation with you. But what you're really asking is, what should my attitude be toward this person? How do I deal with this since we are estranged from each other, at least to some degree? And the truth is, friends, you must deal with your own internal attitude toward those who sin against you lest it devolve into bitterness. Jesus showed this kind of forgiving spirit on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. A prayer that the Father not execute them summarily for the heinous deed of executing the Messiah. Stephen displayed this forgiving spirit when he prayed just before he was martyred at the end of Acts chapter 7, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Internally, you must deal now with your attitude against those who have sinned against you because you cannot control whether or not they are willing to pursue reconciliation or not. But you can and must deal with your own internal attitude toward them. But if you have the opportunity to be reconciled, that requires that they see the error of their way. And so it is not, now this is where it gets tricky, Someone has sinned, you want reconciliation, and they're not willing to pursue it. But you're still with them. You still cross paths with them. You are not, hear this, you are not to behave as if it's business as usual. Now, why? So that you can show them that you're still ticked at them? No. So that you can show them the error of their way because your hope and prayer is that by doing so, there will be reconciliation. What many people want to do is simply say, let's sweep it under the rug. But God takes sin seriously among his people. And when we sin against one another, we should pursue reconciliation. We should initiate it, whether the offender or the offended. But we can't control what the other party does. We can control our internal attitude toward them. But always we are praying and we are hoping and we are prodding them to move toward reconciliation. It is not business as usual. I heard a good definition then of forgiveness. Forgiveness is designed to honor God by graciously restoring a sinning brother. Forgiveness is designed to honor God by graciously, notice, restoring a sinning brother or sister. Here's a third question. Can you forgive when the individual does the same thing over and over? And the answer to that, biblically, is is yes. But I want to speak just briefly to those of you who are in relationships where you struggle with particular things, perhaps in a marriage relationship, 
A husband struggles with a particular thing. A wife struggles with a particular thing. And they find themselves coming to their spouse regularly and saying, I messed up again. Will you forgive me? Now, that's what you should do. And that forgiveness should be granted. And that means the four promises that we have talked about. But for those of us who have particular things that we continue to do regularly, you need to understand this important distinction. There's a difference between transactional forgiveness and transformational forgiveness. I made that up, but it sounds really cool. Transactional and transformational. And what I mean is this. Transactional is what we normally do. I sin, here's how the transaction goes. I sinned, I messed up, I tell you I I messed up. Will you forgive me? You say yes, you make these promises. We go on, I sin again, we do the transaction over again. And we do the transaction over again, and we do the transaction over again. Now, what does Jesus say about your part in forgiving? Seventy times seven. Jesus says, you have a forgiving spirit, you are willing to forgive. But if we want to see each other grow in Christ's likeness, we have to move beyond the transactional to the transformational. We want to get to a point where we see the root of our sin and we uproot the idols of our hearts. Not so that we no longer sin, that won't happen this side of heaven, but so that we are pursuing that sin and engaging in that particular transaction fewer and fewer times. Forgiveness becomes simply transactional rather than transformational, hear this, when it's divorced from repentance. When you come and you confess and you ask someone to forgive you, implicit in that is the idea that I want to forsake this sin. I want to move in a different direction. So just as forgiveness between parties should be preceded by confession, I did this, forgiveness should also be succeeded by repentance. We pray to be forgiving, I say in your outline. And lastly, We pray not to just be forgiving, but to be forgiven. We pray to be forgiven. Verse 12, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts. Last week I pointed out to you that for those who are in the family of God, those who have God as their father, then this forgiveness is not the forgiveness of an angry judge, but this is the forgiveness that we're seeking from a displeased father. I called it last week parental forgiveness rather than judicial forgiveness. Now, how do I know that this is the kind of forgiveness in view here? Because this is a prayer for Jesus' followers. He says, pray. How's it start? Our Father. So the assumption here is that I'm in the family of God and God is my Father. But nevertheless, I want to please Him with my life. And when by my sin I displease Him, I seek that parental forgiveness. But hear this. It may be, if you're outside the family of God, the judicial forgiveness that you're seeking. And how do I know I'm outside the family of God? Jesus has said, if you are an unforgiving person, you're not a Christian. I mean, that's what he's saying in verses 14 and 15. So one commentator says, when we sin, we can respond in several ways. And not all of them involve the repentance that's necessary for us to do, as I said earlier, transform. Let me list those quickly. He says we can excuse our sin, especially by blaming others. If we get angry, someone provoked us. If we fail, someone tempted us. 
We even sometimes blame God for our sins. And that's why James had to say in James chapter 1, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So we can excuse our sin, blame others, even blame God. Or we can deny our sin. We redefine our actions so they sound better. So people who are not repentant, these are people who never argue. They just have animated discussions. They never shout. They just make their points emphatically. They don't steal. They borrow indefinitely without telling the owner. And if anyone points out the error, that person is judgmental. We can succumb when we sin rather than repenting and confessing. We can succumb to shame and run away. We can collapse in guilt and self-recrimination. We can give up because we decide that we're unable to change. We can simply try to turn over a new leaf and resolve to try harder. Or we can do this, dear friends. We could ask the Lord of mercy for his help. Some wonder if God will forgive us when we commit the same sins over and over. He will. Forgive us as part of Jesus' model prayer. And we pray this way daily. Now hear this. Jesus said in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And then he says, forgive us our sins. If we can ask for our bread daily, we can ask for our Father's parental forgiveness daily. So how can I move forward? How can you move forward? And we'll be done. There's a poem by John Bunyan, the famous Baptist preacher who was jailed for preaching the gospel without a license, literally, in England. But John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. And how does it give us those wings? How does the gospel, the good news that is found in Jesus Christ, give us those wings to then carry out the things that God has commanded? Well, the first of those two wings is what Christ did for us even before we were born, friends. He loved you with a special saving love. Christ gave himself for you as a sacrifice, and God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice, and your debt is paid. The second wing is what he's done for us during our lifetime. He has brought us to faith and put you in a saving relationship with God. God has adopted you into his family as a child of his own, and God forgave us all our sins, and there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when John Bunyan says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands, but far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Hear this, it bids us fly. It bids us forgive. And it gives us the wings to do that. If you believe in your heart that God has done all of this for you and in you, you will fly. You will forgive. Genuine believers are forgiven people. Therefore, they are forgiving people. And I say at the bottom of your outline, Christians have a heart of forgiveness. Now, we got to quit. But man... There are so many of us that have business to do with God. There are so many homes where forgiveness is not spoken and not practiced. And by God's grace, I pray that as a result of seeing what Jesus says and the seriousness with which he deals with this most important issue, 
that there will be people who came into this room estranged from one another, perhaps within the four walls of your own home, who are determined by God's grace to be reconciled, and you will humble yourself and you will confess your sin of unforgiveness. Dear friends, we don't want to be those two Scottish ladies who show up at church and go through the motions and all the while do not exhibit the characteristics of what it means to be a Christian, a son or daughter of the Father. And so we're going to pray. And as we do, I urge you to think about that relationship that is unreconciled. I ask you to think about that friend you have who's refusing to reconcile with someone. And they're being pursued for reconciliation, but they refuse to do so. You be a friend to them, and you tell them, Jesus says, you reconcile. And as a result of that, may we be changed people, and may the prayer that we had at the beginning, Lord, may we leave this place more like you than when we came, be fulfilled. Let's bow. Oh, Father, your demands are beyond us. We are not able, we are not able to do what you command. But the gospel does indeed give us wings. I pray, Lord, that your people would fly with those wings that you have provided. And that today would be the first step in reconciliation in many relationships. Oh, Lord, it's an affront to you that we would name your name, that we would gather as your people, that we would sing praise to you, that we would extol the forgiveness that Jesus has provided to us and yet be unforgiving ourselves. Lord, have mercy. So, Lord, we ask you to move in our hearts, move in your church, and make us people who are like Jesus. For your glory's sake, we pray. Amen.